Hi, I'm Eric Ostro, host of Live at the Lord Town. For season four, we continue our focus on art and activism. Why do off-Broadway artists uplift certain causes, and how do those causes make them the artists they are today? And while we gather virtually, we'd like to recognize that we occupy land stolen from indigenous people. Join us in acknowledging this history and consider our role in reconciliation, decolonization, and allyship. Hi. Good evening, everybody. It's a bittersweet night here at Live at the Lortel. It is the last show we are doing virtually. We'll talk more about that later, but I really am very excited about our guest tonight. So George Salazar is best known for his work on Broadway as Michael in Be More Chill, a role for which he won a Lucille Lortel Award. His theater credits include a Drama Dex-nominated performance in The Lightning Thief, the Percy Jackson musical, Michael, in the off-Broadway revival of Jonathan Larson's Tick, Tick, Boom, the Broadway revival of Godspell, and many, many more. He has appeared on television in American Crime Story, Impeachment, and Superstore, and is the voice of Dad Hatter in Disney Junior's animated series, Alice's Wonderland Bakery. George is a huge ally and defender of trans rights. As the son of two immigrants, he cares deeply about immigration and deportation, specifically the string of transfers of incarcerated people who finish their sentences for nonviolent crimes only to then be transferred to ICE detainment. We will speak with him all about that today. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome George Salazar. Hi, Eric. Hi, George. Is, Hi. I feel like I know you already. <laughs> you know, it takes me about a Likewise. week to kind of go through all your interviews and anything you've written and watch whatever I can on YouTube. So I know you very well now. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> How are you, first of all? I'm so good. I'm so, so happy to be here with you today and to chat about off-Broadway and my career and artistry and activism and all that stuff. And yeah, just so excited to be here. I love off-Broadway. Love off-Broadway. I know Crave you it, do. You need it, value it. I love it so much. And so I'm, I'm excited to, to and be you've here. And you've done a lot of it. You know, it's been such a crazy time these past three years. What do you mean? Yeah, well, I mean, for me, maybe not for you, but it's been an insane, crazy time. And I I heard you say before a little bit that you met your partner during the pandemic, which I think is incredible because that doesn't happen very often. What was it like for you, the experience of being an artist and being shut down and having to go virtually and and all that stuff and being a a newbie out in LA, right? Because you had just moved out there. Yeah, it was really scary. Uh, (laughs) You know, like we pay our bills performing live in front of people and the, you know, like the idea of theater being, you know, an art form that was no longer accessible was terrifying, you know. I was very fortunate because before the pandemic happened, I I came to LA to do the Pasadena Playhouse production of Little Shop of Horrors with MJ Rodriguez and then stayed and through that show I, you know, got on board with Superstore and booked a crime story actually in January of 2020. So I had these things lined up, but there was so much uncertainty about like when we were going to start shooting. I know with Crime Story, there were like at least three start dates for me. 
and each of those times, like there was a, an outbreak on set and they had to keep pushing and pushing and Shit, pushing. And yeah. so, you know, it was scary. It was scary as it was for everyone, whether you're an artist or not, but we are resilient people and we we found and created opportunities where we could, you know. I I was feeling really helpless at the beginning of the pandemic and and uh started my own like weekly kind of telethon talk show thing and you know we ended up raising over ten thousand dollars over the course of 10 weeks for 10 different charities every week uh, a a, a guest came in with Mm -hmm. with their own charity that was how i how i kind of like took all of the creativity that i wasn't able to tap into and that was how i was able to kind of let that out um well i think that's always the best thing when you know is always when you're in a space like that to give back it's yeah. something that makes you feel like you're doing something, you're accomplishing something and you're, you're helping people. Yeah. It was nice to feel that instead of yeah. feel the like gloom and doom of like <laughs> just sitting there watching the news all the time and, you know, yeah. terrified uh, yeah. if Which your you- parents are wearing masks when they should be, yeah. you know, like stuff like exactly that. Exactly right. I totally get it. Talk to me about your parents, where they're from and where you grew up a little bit. Yeah. So I am a first generation American. I'm mixed race. My mother was born in the Philippines, came to America in her 20s to be a nurse. My father is from Ecuador, came to America when he was a child. They met beautifully in New York, which is like, (laughs) where else does a Filipino immigrant Meet and fall in love with an Ecuadorian immigrant, New New York York City. I was born in Staten Island, New York, and we moved to Florida in uh, 1992. And I was there up until the end of college. I went to school at the University of Florida. And then as soon as I was done, I was like, get me out of Florida. And this is like pre Ron DeSantis. Like this is how deep my like loathing for Florida kind of exists. I understand. In, in you know, I'm, I'm here right now. Um, you know, uh, June, we, we head back to, to New York till October. So it's very difficult to put on the TV now. And all the local news is DeSantis is doing this. And, you know, we have a big, huge trans community here. And it's heartbreaking. It is, yeah. it is literally, it's just heartbreaking what, what's happening here in the state. And with books and with, you know, drag queens just reading, you know, reading time with children being taken away and um, words that can't be say, said. I mean, we, we have such little educators now. We have yeah. such a small amount of teachers now, especially in the state of Florida and now there's a big list of things you can't do and things you can't say. Yeah. Everyone I know yeah. <laughs> are at risk. Yeah. And it's a scary time, you know, and you have two choices to make, right? Especially if you have a platform of any kind. It's like to kind of sit back and pretend like nothing's happening <laughs> or be there. Get up and yell. Get up and scream. Yeah. I, I completely you know? agree. So let's uh, go back a little done. bit. We're, we're going to get we're going to get to this because that's sure, sure. really really important. When were you bitten by that theater bug? That's what I'm interested in. Yeah. So I was always kind of a class clown growing up. I was always um, I loved attention. 
but I was never, <laughs> I, I, I grew up, how, right. I grew up again in like a, in an immigrant household and mm-hmm. my mother's whole family is like deep in the medical profession and, and in the field. And so I was really good in school. I was a troublemaker, but I got my work done, mm-hmm. you know? Understood. Um, I was the same. And so I wanted to be a doctor. I actually wanted to be a neurosurgeon. Really? Yes. And I was where also- that, a, Where did that come from? From your mother being a nurse or- from, Definitely from my mother being a nurse. You know, there were times where like I would, my sis, my younger sister and I would go with her to work and, you know, we would, she worked at a nursing home for quite a while. And so we would, you know, visit the residents and say hi and they were always so thrilled to see like you know not nurses roaming the halls and actual children and yeah i I was just fascinated with the brain from a very early age i mean it's it's insane i mean to put lightly like you know it's it's such a powerful organ and and so i had a, a real interest in kind of spending my life doing that but i was also a class clown and unofficial entertainer and i was a big weird al fan and so I used to rewrite pop songs and they were always um, not safe for school lyrics. <laughs> and that's how that's, that was my way in with the cool crowds, right? Yeah. It was like, check out this, this version of hit me baby one more time that I yeah. wrote. And so I was doing it once in a computer class and the president of the drama club <laughs> overheard me singing and was like, you have to come audition for little shop of horrors after school and i was like i'm really busy (laughs) mind you i was like a very chubby kid and very busy meant i have to go home to watch you know maury povich and And eat like totino's pizza rolls right that was my plan but i i he was so resilient like he kept coming up to me throughout the day he would find me in the hallways and would like guilt me about not not wanting to come audition. And so finally I was like, fine, I'll come. I've never done an audition before. I don't even know what this process is like. I was so nervous. And I got there and he was like, just go through that book, that stack of books and find a song that you know, and then sing it. And I like, I wasn't raised on musicals. Mm. I think my parents went on a date once in the eighties to see cats and they both hated it. <laughs> <laughs> you know so like there were just no there was no right. um that being a new york kid and not and not your parents just didn't take you to the theater because it no. wasn't something you were interested in no it just wasn't yeah it wasn't on our radar it wasn't in your radar things to do yeah right so uh i found i did know disney because i was growing up in in orlando and so i found the lion king vocal selections book and i sang circle of life right. a la Elton John. Like I actually did the Elton John like vocal affectations. Oh. Uh, you know, on the day we arrived. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, that yeah. whole thing. Uh-huh. And I booked it. <laughs> I got cast as Seymour in my wow. first musical. And it was I was like, oh my God, these are the people that I've been looking for mm. my whole life. Like this is the energy that I have been existing on solo right and now there's like other people like me and we're all just weird and crazy and we're gonna make a musical together and it was hard for my parents at first because you know like they had this idea that like their son was gonna become a neurosurgeon and now suddenly i'm like i'm gonna be an actor in musicals (laughs) 
my mother was pretty quick on the uptake to like uh, be 100% behind it. My dad for a couple years was like, if you want to go to law school, I'll pay for it. Like that kind of stuff. <laughs> But, but I you never had to gave have up. known that you can sing. I mean, and when I tell you, George, that I mean you, I mean you can sing. <laughs> I mean, it's not just like you know you have a, a little voice. I mean, you have a big, magnificent, and extraordinary sound Thank that you. comes out of you. Thank you. I, it, as a kid, would you sing? I mean, as a no. teen, would you sing? You didn't know that you couldn't sing like that. No, I was a drummer. My dad, my dad's a musician. My dad's a drummer, and so okay. I picked up the drums and played drums in middle school, and then kind of played it as a hobby in high school. But no, I wasn't. I was never really like a singer. Wow. My mother can't sing. <laughs> my father, God, forget about that. Like my my younger sister actually is like she's like a secret belter. Like she actually is like, she went to school for occupational therapy, but like she could have a career in theater if she wanted she to. Sing. She can sing. So I don't know where we got this. My sister and I got this from. My older sister can actually sing as well. It's, it's very strange. But no, so I, you I got, just, up, I, you I got up on the stage. You sang Circle of Life. And I mean, <laughs> as those notes were coming out of you, were you like, where is this coming from? I mean, were, were you just struck by the bug at that moment. I mean, you must have blown the theater people out of the seats. I mean, you got the part. I mean, remember, this is high school theater, so the bar yeah. is very low. <laughs> but no, I mean, I think it's that thing where, you know, like when, when you speak, your voice sounds a certain way. And then when yeah. you listen to a recording of it, you're like, that's what I oh, sound like. God, yes, I know. It was, it's, it was, it's like very much that, you know? Yeah. And so, no, I just, I had no idea. You know, it was, there's a really great story of like my drama teacher who has since passed away, Ann Harris, she called my parents in because I told her like, my, my dad, my dad's like kind of giving me a little bit of like pushback on this idea of me going to theater school. And like, can you just talk to him? So she called them in for like a parent teacher thing. And she said, Mr. Salazar, the world has many doctors. There's only one George. Wow. You have to let him do this. He was meant to do this. Again, cannot emphasize the importance of educators yeah. and how yeah. we need to be taking care of our educators. Yes, we do. Um, but my dad was like, okay, you're right. I, he was, he, when he was here uh, visiting uh, last week with my mom, he told this story again with tears in his eyes. And it was like, oh. you know, really beautiful to hear him say it. But, you know, yeah, no, it was all, none of this. I always refer to my career and my accomplishments as like a bunch of, uh, a series of left turns. <laughs> you know, like I wasn't even supposed to be here and I'm just grateful for that day in high school in computer class. So you had no, you weren't like me. Like I was a little shop, you know, fanatic. I mean, I, you know, I got to see it down at the Orpheum and oh, I was obsessed. I mean, I'm I think so it was jealous. 11 or 12. It was my bar mitzvah present, you know, I, and <laughs> you know, it's still one of my favorite shows in the whole world, but yeah, so you didn't really have a canon of music to go by. No. So you know how like everyone grew up listening to like uh, Oliver or uh, course Oklahoma line. or Chorus Line. Right. Like my education of musicals began with Jason Robert Brown. <laughs> like the last five years and Songs for New World were my first favorite musicals. I understand. And so people are like, you know, what about Oklahoma? I was like, I just, it, I, I, 
I skipped that. Yeah. You went right. You know, like you went to right, right to um, stars in the moon. Right. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. yeah. Surabaya Santa, baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so from what was the, um, so you're, you got the lead in Little Shop. I'm got sure you had, I hope you had a good Audrey and the experience oh. was good. And then take me on the trajectory. Like what's the next left turn that you made that you said? Yeah. So the next left turn was um, theater school. The next left turn was I, 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 to, I, I applied as like a biology major. Oh, just to kind of, I remember having a having an argument with my dad where I was like, I want to go to NYU. I want to be an NYU musical theater student. And he was like, no. <laughs> he was like the state of so I was uh, I was like really top of the class, like academically. And so I had a full ride scholarship from the state of Florida to an in-state school. So my dad was like, you have this opportunity to go to college for free. And then they're going to pay you like an allowance for books and stuff every semester you're not going to like go to New York, pay whatever the tuition is there. Right. So I, I, I applied as a bio major, got it into the musical theater program, did four years of, of that program and um, was already very like um, in charge of my own destiny. Like uh, when I got there, I was an overweight Brown kid and the curriculum that is prepared at a lot of these theater schools is very like dance heavy. And I had a heart to heart with the head of the program and said, like, I don't see myself ever being cast as a dancer. That's not my thing. I would rather take more acting classes and take more music classes than take, you know, four dance classes in a semester. And so I really fought to like, customize my own <laughs> education my thing was like i'm paying to be here even though the state of florida was paying for right. me to be there and so i did just that you know i really like i knew i knew what my gig was going to be and it was not going to be being an, in the ensemble of a chorus line right this was never going to happen it's not gonna, that's not for you um and so, so you created your own curriculum which which consisted of what just acting classes. I, I saw the acting courses that the BFA acting students were taking. And I was like, right. I want to be in those classes. And I really made that my top priority because in college, I experienced a vocal injury. And it was then that I realized like this, having this is like, I'm very lucky to have this and have this ability, but this can go away at any time. And so I need to have the tools to be able to like do the other stuff so that I'm not just um, a musical theater singer. Right. That makes sense. Yes. So, sense. so that's, so that's what I did. And then, as soon, uh, you know, I graduated and left and moved to New York and waited tables in Times Square and hit the audition circuit hard. And it was a huge culture shock for me. I remember I'll never forget the first like two weeks of me being in New York. I didn't leave the house once. I was so scared. Oh, where? Tell me so, about it. Wait, well, tell me about where. What was the experience of going to New York? Where did you live? How did you? Like, yeah. What was that? What was that experience? Okay. So the other thing about being brown and overweight in Florida, in the Southeast, was in the summers. I never got hired to do summer stock. Like I, no one ever hired me to do summer stock, and so with nothing to do, I would intern in the city, and so I interned 
my first internship was with a general management company, Martian Entertainment, mm-hmm. that did that handled a lot of off-Broadway stuff. And then the second summer that I spent in New York, I was interning at Bono Brian Brown, which is like, you know, the Broadway the press place, office. Yes. Yeah. And so I got I got, you know, it's not like I like moved to New York and was like, what is this? Like I, I was well acquainted. I was scared to do a job hunt. You know, I didn't know where to start. I was having like kind of like, you know, I three of my friends from college moved to New York shortly after me. I was the first one there. So it's not like I had like a community of people. It was scary and intimidating and tough. And then eventually I was like, oh, oh God, uh, rent is going to be due soon. I need to get a job. And so like I got off my ass and like, and got that job. And, you know, I waited tables for two years and then I booked my first big job, which was the non-union Spring Awakening tour, the Michael Mayer right. original production. Yeah, I left town for about six months. It was l- literally like a human rights violation working non-ec with yeah, networks. Bet. Like yeah, we I did bet. 72 cities in six months. Yeah, I bet. On the bus. We slept on the bus. Yeah. You know, it was like never again. But it was an incredible experience. And I got yeah, to see I the bet. country. And I was like, this is... I'm not waiting tables, you know, I'm making $3 a week, but it's doing what I love to do. And I wouldn't have it any other way. Right. The relationships that you make with the people that you're on tour for six months are just, you know, they know everything about you. Every, everything. Yeah. Lifelong. Yeah. But they're like my siblings. And then uh, I came back. I didn't save any money on tour. I bought a lot of sneakers. How could you? And so I, exactly. And so I, uh, the restaurant I was working at brought me back in. I waited tables for another, maybe like six months. And then I booked Godspell on Broadway, which was my Broadway debut. Wow. So what was that like? What was it? I mean, in terms of, talk to me about you, because you keep saying it. And I read a lot about you. You talk about being a brown, overweight artist. You yeah. don't say artist, but you say, you know, person. Yeah. And besides whether you lose weight or, or whatever, I mean, in my head that although I'm not brown, I, I'm still that fat kid from, from school. So to go into auditions and to what advantage did you have and what disadvantages did you have when you were, was that in your head always about being an overweight brown person when you were going No, into- somehow somehow it didn't enter my mind until Good. like 2014. It wasn't until like after Godspell. The vantage that I had I think was that I was always confidently me. I was raised by two parents who were always proud of me, right? And so I was able to navigate through the world feeling confident in who I am. The disadvantages were many, you know, mm. but in terms of Godspell, they really set out to assemble a diverse cast. Diverse cast, yeah. And it was a beautiful company to be a part of. Because I, yeah. I remember I was I was touring with Spring Awakening and there was probably like three, four, yeah, probably like four people of color in that entire company on the road. So it was really nice to be in a company where we had people of all shapes and sizes, all colors, all identities, you know, it was, it was beautiful. And what we were creating together was incredible. You know, it was, um, we were building community. We were building community for people, for audience members. And it was the first time that I experienced kind of, um, 
you know, like the repeat offenders at the stage mm-hmm. door, you know, who come yeah. back time and time again. Yeah. You know, it's not because there's an obsession that's unhealthy. It's because something in that show spoke to them. Something in that show made them feel like themselves, made them feel comfortable. And that feeling, if you live without that feeling most of the time, when you mm-hmm. find that feeling, you want to experience it over and over and over again. Yeah, it's, you it's, should. You know, yeah. it's the yeah. best kind of drug. And so it was beautiful. The whole thing was, it was lovely. I now have, we all have knee problems now. We call them the Godspell knees. My <laughs> knee just popped. I don't know if the microphone picked it up. But it was an incredible nine months. And, you know, there was a lot of heartbreak and excitement and mm-hmm. just all of the emotions. Um, I think people forget that Godspell was the beginning of something different that was about to happen on Broadway. Besides the production being beautiful, and I'd never seen a production of Godspell like it. I used to, it was never my favorite show, but that particular production of Godspell was life altering. And not only to me, but I mean, with all the people I was sitting with in the theater. I mean, it was so beautiful and it was so seamless and that there was a rainbow of people was just beautiful to see. Like not everybody was a white male that could sing a a high C, you know, it just, it just was. And you guys seem to, really create this world we loved each other share it with us yeah yeah we loved each other and we got to we got to create and so everything we made together was born out of love Mm. and that's like the whole point of godspell yes right so like whether the critics hated it or or liked it or whatever at the end of the day didn't matter we made something with a lot of love and there were people who were incredibly touched and moved by it yes Talk to me about the stage door, because you talk a lot about that in interviews and when you're being interviewed, and I think I've read every interview you've done and everything (laughs) you've wrote. I've watched podcasts and listened to things, and you talk about the stage door. And I commend you for your patience and your love for the people that come see the show so many times because there is something in that show that has touched them and they feel yeah they they can feel so i've been taught that you know the experience of the show is the show mm-hmm. you know it's going to the show but a lot of my young friends when i taught and my young students they didn't care how long they waited at the stage door for any show they wanted to let george know that what he did on stage that night helped them get to an audition or help them pass high school. You know, I, I would love your point of view about what the stage door experience is for you. Yeah. My summer's in New York. Perfect. This is where it all comes from. I rushed and did lotteries for shows. You know, these were unpaid internships. So I was dipping into my savings, dipping into my parents' savings yeah. <laughs> to go see these shows. And I was just, I was always just constantly blown away by the talent. And then after the show, you know, I would buy my window card and, or I'd have my playbill and mm-hmm. I would want to meet these people. Yeah. I wanted to see them as humans. Mm-hmm. I wanted to see what they were like. I wanted to maybe talk to them if they had the time for it. Mm-hmm. And 
I had conversations with, he would never remember this. None of them would ever remember it because it's like, you know, how do you remember these things? Especially if you are the type of artist who is generous and giving at a stage door, but like Norbert Leo Butts, I saw him in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. I saw that guy in that show probably like 11 times and I stage doored every time. And he signed a playbill every single time. Raul Esparza, perfect example. He left it all out on stage during that company revival. Mm -hmm. One of the most incredible, most impactful performances of my, you know, these formative years for me. Especially the aspiring artist. The last 10 minutes of that show. Yeah. Yeah. -hmm. Yeah. Stood there and talked to me. Felicia P. Fields, who played Sophia in The Color Purple, Mm -hmm. she would bring me backstage. And I would wow. sit with her in her dressing room after the show while she was getting ready to leave. And we would just talk about life. Wow. I learned so much about how to be a person in this industry. Mm-hmm. You know, like they don't teach you that at school. They teach you how to high kick and sing a note and proper placement. And, you know, but they don't teach you how to be a good soul. And it was so, so important in my growth to have experienced those moments at the stage door. And I remember saying to myself, if I ever get to walk out of one of those stage doors, I'm going to talk to every single person who's stuck around. And so I have like, I've stayed true to that unless I'm yeah. like sick yeah. or, or like have somewhere to be immediately right. afterwards. Of course. You know, I'm out there and there's a lot that goes into that decision. It's like knowing that I wouldn't be there if it wasn't for those people. Mm-hmm. So it comes from a place of gratitude because they you know, spent Broadway isn't cheap. No. And especially, especially if these are no. young people, mm-hmm. right? So I don't know if they have a, if they have a after school job and they just blew their entire, you know, right. life savings on one night at Be More Or Chill. if they got lucky and they got the lottery, whatever it was. Yeah, you're, yeah. You're absolutely so, right, yeah. So it comes from a place of gratitude for me. But more than that, I always walk out of the stage door and I hope to see a kid that looks like I did when I was in... Mm. high school or middle school or elementary school. It's never lost on me that I get to do this thing and their eyes on it. And somewhere some kid is going to see my performance, whether he's a brown chubby kid or none of the above Mm -hmm. may see something in that performance that speaks to them. And so it's just a, it's just a, you know, for me, it's like an opportunity to do away with the, uh, the persona of being an actor. Yeah. I'm a human being. I'm a person, you know? There are many artists who leave the stage door or they go out the back, et cetera, et cetera, that that don't, you know. It's a lesson that I learned very early when I was working at Actors Theater Louisville and Mary Beth Peel. You know who Mary Beth Peel is? Mm -hmm. She she sat me down one day and she said, uh, here's my lesson for the year. Best... And most talented people in this business are the ones that are the kindest. That's it. And are the ones that are willing to give back. That's it. And that has stayed with me forever. She's absolutely right. She's 100% right. So that's why I do it. You know, it's easy. You just, you know, like the hard part is done. (laughs) You just did a two and a half hour musical. Your body hurts, you know, like but now you, you are, ex- but you are tired, high. but you, but you know, you find, no, no one's, you, you t- no, your- I'm not, no, 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 no. I'm okay. going to, I'm going to dispel uh, that 
uh, narrative doesn't exist. Okay. Everyone who's in the business knows that when a show comes down, whether you're doing it on Broadway, off Broadway, or regionally, or at a community theater, no one is tired. Everyone is fully wired. <laughs> no one can go home and just go to bed right, right. away. There's a process you to are kind of unwind. Up, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, you know, better to expel that energy so that when I do get home, I actually am tired. <laughs> yeah, I agree. That's the well, selfish part of it. Let's talk about your relationship with Joe Iconis and let's talk about Be More Chill yeah, and how that came to you. And it was like overnight. I want to know if it felt like, oh my God, there I am out online and my video has been streamed 50 million times. I mean, things like this just don't happen every day. No, they don't. And that was never lost on me. That's also another reason why I did the stages of every night of Be More Chill. You know, it didn't feel like overnight for me because we did the world premiere in, I'm staring at the New Jersey show poster on, on my wall right now, actually. <laughs> we did that show in 2015 mm-hmm. in New Jersey. The Times came and gave it a, a terrible review and the show died. And fortunately, some really generous folks in New Jersey basically funded a cast recording. If it wasn't for the cast recording uh, and for their generosity, the show wouldn't, wouldn't have had the kind of um, revival that it did. We did the cast recording that came out on Halloween of 2015. And then that was it crickets, you know, it just died. I moved on. We all moved on. We grieved. And then I was doing the lightning thief Right. At the Lortel Theater. Yes. Thank which you Which is for one of my all-time yeah. favorite spaces that I've ever performed It is the best off-Broadway house in the world. And I um, started getting fan art sent to the theater. And I was like, uh, oh, this must be like the, the really like obsessed Percy Jackson fandom. Like this is, right. this is like Percy Jackson artwork. Right. And I would open it and it would be Michael in the bathroom stuff. I was like, What? And then it just kept, it was fast, but it was also kind of gradual. And then on social media, like I was like, my Instagram account was like blowing up and on Twitter, my, my account was blowing up and I was like, what's happening? What's same that? thing was happening with Joe. Same thing was happening with Will Connolly who played yeah. Jeremy in that, in that production. Joe and I talked to each other and we were like, did you do anything with Be More Chill? Like, no. <laughs> No, we couldn't figure it out. And eventually we found, we discovered that, that um, a video of me singing Michael in the bathroom at a press event at 54 below right. was shared on Tumblr right. and then reshared and reshared and reshared and reshared. And, and that's how it all happened. It was a, gr- a pretty gradual thing. The business of Broadway is very old fashioned. And so it was, you know, Joe was kind of like, you know, screaming, like, look at these numbers. This is crazy. And no one understood what it meant or, or what can be done with it. And so, you know, we were both, we both ended up, I was like talking to producers, but I've never done that. You know, like that was a territory that I had not ever kind of stepped in, but I really believed in the, the potential of this show. And eventually, you know, we found a home off Broadway at the signature. And then we transferred to Broadway. And I mean, the whole journey was just, it was insane. It was again, left turns, like just a series of left turns. That show was supposed to die 
with that times review in 2015. Right. And as far as you and Joe were concerned, it was dead. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, My relationship with Joe is top three things I'm most grateful for in my life. In college, I was assigned a book report on Cheetah Rivera and her frequent collaborations with Candor and Ebb. And in doing that research, I remember being like, well, that's what I want. I want to find a writing team who gets me and who I get. And we just click. And then that's your artistic home base. Right. And so when I moved to New York, I was like, you know, going to these cabarets and experiencing all these things. And Jennifer Tepper, yeah, you know, Broadway's sweetheart is very close friends with Joe and was a producer on Be More Chill, but she worked at Ken Davenport's office when I did Godspell. And she's the one who introduced me to Joe back in 2011 after a preview of Godspell. And Joe invited me in to do, you know, his Christmas show. Mm -hmm. And little by little, I was doing more. And then he was getting ready to do a workshop of Be More Chill and pulled me aside and was like, I think there's a part in this that's perfect for you. And this is a man who... In the, in the original book, the source material for the Be More Chill musical, Michael is like a very tall ginger with like a, with like an, a, like a white boy afro. Oh, that's interesting. Right? Yeah. And I am not that no. <laughs> at all. And the fact that Joe saw me in this, in this part and, um, and thought that it would be a good fit for me. I think like, you know, it spoke volumes for what our partnership can be. And more than that, no one had ever trusted me with something like this before. Mm. And he allowed me, he gave me a platform to show all the corners of, of my abilities. And without him, I just, I don't know, you know, again, another left turn. But the and left so, turn into Michael in the bathroom, um, George, I mean, I would say everybody can connect to that song. Everybody. Even the most popular, loved, let's, let's say it was in high, the high school cheerleader or football, everybody can relate to that song. Do you think it had something not only to do with you and your ethnicity and um, where you're from or what you look like and these words that are coming out of your mouth of this insecurity of locking yourself in this bathroom that touched these kids? Yeah, I mean, I will go to the grave saying that Joe Iconis is, you know, my favorite musical theater composer he taps into in such a beautiful way all the things that make us feel insecure he's just so good at putting setting that to music yes you know i can't take all the credit for michael in the bathroom obviously he wrote this incredible song but we worked together in a beautiful way i mean the 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 collabor- the collaboration with joe is like there's just nothing quite like it. I'll never forget the first workshop in 2014 that I did. He had me stick around after everyone else was excused. And he said, let's play with keys. Yeah. The song was much lower back then. Mm-hmm. And we kept playing. And I said, let's keep, let's keep. 
Just keep going higher, higher. And, you know, that actually came from a a place of always feeling like I was going to be replaced by someone white. And so what I would do in all these rooms was try to make it as hard for them to replace me (laughs) as possible. So that was the the motivation in that room at that time was like, let's go a little higher. Let's go a little higher. Let's go a little higher. Just eliminating all the competition. No, there's as nobody much of the else competition that can do as possible. this. Right. And so, you know, but what I felt every night singing that song was the perfect meeting of artists. I always say that Joe is my favorite writer because he gives you everything you need. As an actor, he gives you everything you need. There's right. no, you don't have to dig or mine for anything. It's, it's all right there, there in the text. Mm-hmm. It's all there in the music. If you just step back and listen to what the drums are doing, right? Yeah. Or you listen to what the, you know, the, 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 the rhythms of the chords, read the words, it's all there for you. And so it just felt like the perfect marriage of artists. I understood him, he understood me, and we just... You know, and aside from being, you know, frequent collaborators, we're, we're great friends, you know, yes. like there's never been a fight. There's never been a fight. There's never been an argument. You know, we just see eye to eye and it's, you know, it's the thing that I dreamt of in college. Yes. College George writing about Cheetah Rivera and Candor and Ebb. You got your Candor and Ebb. You got it. You got it. You yeah. know, when he came in to be interviewed at Live to Lortel at the theater, there were some people that came to watch, including his parents. And he kept telling me, because I, I saw Be More Chill when it was at Signature. I had a friend who was one of the producers, so I saw it and I loved it. I had a great time. But she was like, no, man, you got to come back on this night or this night or this night. He's like, I'd like to see you there on one of the family nights because of the after show show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I came back and he was so happy to see me. And it was it was like being the only thing I can relate it to and I can because I'm not old enough, but to me it was like being my version of Woodstock. Mm. It was just a group of people who stayed after the show when people were performing and it just was that feeling of warmth and love that you get when you are at the theater and doing and seeing something you love so much. Yeah. Yeah. You know, those, those after show performances, you know, I'll be completely transparent. That was like definitely a a ticket sale. Like, yeah, sure. You know, we, the, the, the times review came out and, you know, then the Tonys happened and then we started noticing a very dr- dramatic, you know, decrease in ticket sales. Yeah. And that was one great way to get people in. Sure but was. I think it also speaks volumes about who Joe is as a person, because I've done countless shows with countless creatives who the second the show opens, you never see him again. Mm-hmm. You'd be lucky to hear from them if there's a closing notice. Right. Not Joe Iconis. No. And not Joe. Joe was there every night. Right. The, this is the, this was his dream. He wanted he wanted to write a show that would play on Broadway, and he got it. And he was never going to let a single moment of that slip through his fingers. And those are the types of artists that you want to surround yourself with because they're doing it for all the right reasons. So you are currently about to go to La Jolla in July to do a new Joe Iconis musical, and we are lucky enough that you shared a video with us. Tell us a little bit about the show, and then we're going to show this video because amazing! I, I can't wait. 
It's so um, a little bit about the show. Yeah, the show is called the Untitled Unauthorized Hunter S. Thompson Musical. Uh, Joe has been working on this baby for over a decade. I've been a part of the development for almost nine years. Wow. And I've been playing a character named Oscar Zeta Acosta, whose autobiography is propping my, my computer up. But Oscar was a civil rights attorney. He was a public defender. He was an activist. He was a writer obviously. And he was best friends with Hunter S. Thompson. He was the inspiration for Dr. Gonzo and Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Oh, wow. They had a very contentious falling out and and um, and Oscar was, you know, plagued by mental illness and, and drug addiction. I'd love to read that. I'm going to send you an email if you can send me yeah. the, yeah, because I want to yeah. read that, yeah. And so, you know, the, the show itself kind of tracks Hunter's journey and his seek, his search for legacy. That's the one thing that he always kind of um, stressed over was like, what will I be remembered for when I'm gone? You know, the show dives into his problematic side as well, you know, because he was a gun, gun, gun guy, as was Oscar. But, you know, I always describe it as Joe's Sunday in the Park with George Mm. on acid. That sounds it's like really something thrilling. I would love to go to every day. I think you would yeah. love it. Chris Ashley is directing. and oh, What a great and, director. Yeah, and we'll be at La Jolla Playhouse at the end of the summer. And so the song is the song of the brown buffalo. It's when we meet and when Hunter meets Oscar for the very first time. I've always wanted to say roll that clip. Can we roll <laughs> that clip? Let's roll that clip. <laughs> Who is Ruben Salazar? Um, I, um, I mean, he... Um... Who was Ruben Salazar? Anybody? He was a Mexican-American journalist killed by police during a peaceful protest. I'm a lawyer, man. While you were off growing wings, I've been defending wrongfully imprisoned black and brown kids. You ran for sheriff of a ski resort town? I ran for sheriff of Los Angeles County with the intent to dismantle the police department. Now I say, they put one of ours in the hospital. We put one of theirs in the morgue. Wow, that's an interesting position. <laughs> and might I ask, yeah. who the fuck are you? Hey, white man. For the 
George, that is great. I, that is a great song. And such a good song. Such a good song. And you sing it beautifully. And I see Thanks. this other character growing out of you, which I can't wait to see. Yes, exactly. You are a chameleon. I mean, you really, I can see you morphing into another human being. And that <laughs> is what an artist does. It's funny how you did Little Chaparras as your first show. And yeah. then you did it at Pasadena Playhouse, and it was such a huge hit uh, yeah. with you and and Michaela J. And J. Rodriguez, uh, uh, Michaela and uh, Amber, Wiley. Amber Wiley as the plant, and yeah, Kevin Chamberlain, yeah, Kevin Chamberlain as yeah, Mister Mushnik. I mean, what an incredible cast and what an incredible vision that I. I mean, I didn't get to see it. But, you know, obviously I scan the internet. There's a bootleg and, online. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, is there? Okay. Uh, I'm going to look for it. But, you know, and then James Corden had you on his show. That's a whole other podcast. But <laughs> it was such, when you guys sang Suddenly Seymour, it was such a, a beautiful and magnificent moment. Uh, what was it like for you to play that every night with her and with these phenomenal artists? A dream. Yeah. Like a total dream, you know? We didn't have to, like, change anything in the show. I bet not. that casting to make sense. Yes. For our absolutely. casting to make sense. A hundred percent. Little Shop, so much of the humor and comedy in Little Shop is this idea of kind of, like, these people living on Skid Row, you know? There's, in the opening number, there, there's, a, there's a moment where we poke fun at someone who's unhoused and sleeping on the street, there was something really powerful that brought that was brought to the show by having people of color inhabit that world and tell the story. It changed everything. It changed yeah. the stakes. Yeah, when you hear a trans woman sing about wanting wanting to be somewhere that's green, a matchbox of our own, a fence with a chain link. I mean, it, it, I'm it, getting goosebumps like I, literally just talking too. about it. Yeah, you know, for one reason or another a lot of the fans, the younger fans of Be More Chill identified as trans, non mm. non-binary. I got to know a lot of these young people and I've always just been so impressed with trans folks. Yeah. It's not easy. It's not right. easy. None of it is easy. No, no, no stage of that, of that self-discovery no. and living your authentic life is easy, yet they know themselves so well. Yeah, they do. And it's inspiring. It is inspiring um, what's they, happening they, they, in the world right now, which is what I want to get to. I mean, I know how important it is that you scream from the rooftops about trans rights. And the other thing is about immigration and being incarcerated. Tell us and the audience what people can do to learn more about that and what people can do to volunteer their time. I mean, I think the best thing you can do is talk to talk to people. Yeah. You know, you can sit online and research and read things. Yeah. But when you sit across from a trans person or you sit across from an un undocumented person and you hear their stories, it changes your perspective on everything. It changes you. Yeah. You know, we're, we don't all exist walking the same path in this life. And you only benefit yourself by taking the time to listen to people who live a different existence than you do. Yeah. At the end of the day, we're all the same, but we all are different. 
And, um, and so, you know, I'm very fortunate because my, my partner is a reporter. He's incredible. And his work is, I learned so much just reading his stories. The topic of incarcerated folks being transferred to ICE detention after serving their full sentences. And and they're never told this is going to happen. After being in jail for a few years. Right. Yeah. Sometimes for 20 years. Yeah. You know, they, th- there was one story of a volunteer firefighter in prison who came to America at a very young age with his family as refugees, got in with the wrong people at 17, was arrested and sentenced, 25 years in prison, served the entirety of that, fought wildfires in California, saved people's homes from these fires, and then on the day of his release was transferred to ICE detention. And then, you know, threatened with, with uh, deportation. So, you, you know, uh, it's, it's upsetting and, you know, we all live in our own like bubble. And the best thing you can do, listeners, is get out there and meet people and talk to them and listen to them and ask them directly what you can do to help. You know, there are many great organizations out there that you can donate to who are doing really, really great work. Make those real life connections because you'll be forever changed. Yeah, be brave to step out of your comfort zone for a little bit and talk to people and try to understand it a little bit more. There's much more to do to, in volunteering than than just writing a check. A check is great, but there's so much more to do and there's so many people to meet and how, so many stories to tell. George Salazar, you are a joy. I'm so glad so that we got to um, talk for this hour I can't wait to see what you do next. I know what you're doing next. And I can't wait till we meet in person one day. I look forward to that. I'll, be, I, the first, I'll be the first at the stage door. Yeah, please plug what you want. <laughs> I do want to plug another incredible show that I am of currently in rehearsals for right yeah. now. That's um, right. I happened. put that on the thing. Yeah. It's, uh, it's called The Bottoming Process. It is the first time in my life that I have gotten to play a gay Filipino character. This, this play centers this character's journey. It's provocative. It's funny. It's sharp. It's witty. We start performances in Hollywood at the Los Angeles LGBT Center's Renberg Theater. We run May 18th through June 12th. It's presented by the center and also produced by I Am A Theater. The tickets will always be affordable. And I hope that people who live in the area make their way out to come see it because it's really an incredible piece written by a very promising and incredible, I promise you, you, everyone will know his name very soon, Nicholas Pilipil. And the uh, name of the show again? The show is called The Bottoming Process. Okay, The Bottoming Process, right out there in California. Yeah. You can look it up, you can Google it. And um, George Salazar, God bless you for everything you do for artists, for the people standing at the door, for the young kids who who see themselves in you and vice versa. I think you've done such incredible work, not only on stage, but for all those kids out there who just wanted to identify with someone they, they felt it. So thank you. Thank and you. That means I'm, that means so, so much. And, and thank you so much for having me today. This was really uh, like a, a really lovely way to spend uh, it's my been Monday. A joy. That's our show and our last scheduled episode for season four. We hope you've enjoyed all of our 116 episodes. If you haven't heard them all, they are all available wherever you get your podcasts. We're going to take a break now, but we are working on a surprise 
or two. So make sure to go to our website, livethelortel.com and sign up for future announcements. And while you're online, check out lortel.org for information on our other programming. There is a lot happening with the Lortel, such as our program, Dangerous Acts, streaming on all arts, and we are excited to share it with you. As always, thank you for joining us tonight. Please stay healthy, and wherever you are, please support your local theater. Theaters are fundamentally to be healthy, vibrant communities across the country, and they need our support. So go out there and support them. Thank you, everybody. Have a great night. Good night, George. You're the best. Good night. Bye, everyone. This podcast is brought to you by the Lucia Lortel Theater. Live at the Lortel is produced by George Forbes, executive producer yours truly, and associate producer Jeffrey Schubart. Press is provided by Sin Gogolak, GoGo Public Relations. And special thanks to Nancy Hurwitz, Alana Candy Samuel, Mata Levinas, Carla Liriano, and Ellen Chan. Live at the Lortel sound engineer and mixer is Brian Falk at Abacus Entertainment. Thank you so much for listening.